The Hard Shoulder with Kieran Cuddy with Nissan on News Talk. Would you believe it is exactly 90 years this week since Adolf Hitler became the Chancellor of Germany and ever since it's been this cautionary tale what can happen in democracies somebody plays by the rules ostensibly but they say you know what when I get into power I'm dismantling the game the ones I'm following the rules of now well Benjamin Carter Het is the man to talk to about this he is the author of The Death of Democracy Hitler's Rise to Power and the Downfall of the Weimar Republic he joins me now Benjamin thanks a million for taking the time I mean if, if becoming Chancellor is the culmination of his journey the rise to power where does the journey start? Well, hello, Karen. I'm delighted to be with you, uh, I guess, despite the subject. So that's an interesting question. Uh, and actually, if you asked a lot of historians, you might get a lot of different answers. But I think probably the the, the clearest and most obvious answer is that um, a uh, First World War German army veteran, Private First Class Adolf Hitler, came out of the army in 1919, not too sure what to do, but he discovered he had a great ability to speak to crowds and to move crowds. And he started to parley this ability uh, into uh, joining a political party and building the political party into a, a, what we know eventually to become a political juggernaut, the the infamous Nazi party. Um, and I think that's probably where we would have to say it begins. So uh, when does the Nazi party become identifiably Hitler's party? Uh, there, there's actually a pretty clear answer to that. He came in just as a member, but because of his speaking ability, he sort of naturally rose to a leadership uh, position. And in early 1920, um, he basically got the party to adopt uh, a 25-point agenda, and he changed the name of the party from what had been the German Workers' Party to the more familiar National Socialist German Workers' Party. And at that point, uh, early 1920, it's it's pretty clearly Hitler's party, which it pretty clearly remained. And uh, to what extent from those early days was the Hitler we know evident, the values, I suppose, that he held there, was the, the anti-Semitism and the demagoguery, was that always front and center, right from the off? Those things were always front and center. There were things in which we can sort of see Hitler um, changing his mind or changing his thoughts on some things, but on some core things, uh, the anti-Semitism being absolutely at the core. That was right there at the beginning. And there's evidence of this. We know from some things he wrote in 1919, for instance, he's already thinking along the lines of the, the toxic and, and clearly murderous anti-Semitism uh, that he would bring to fruition when he came to power. So what was the context then for all of this uh, taking hold of the popular imagination in Germany? Well, I guess there's yeah, there's maybe two things we could say about that. One is that we have to remember that Germany went through a series of crises that, uh, you know, looking back, it's, it's hard to grasp, you know, losing a world war with uh, nearly two million, mostly young men killed in action, um, uh, then a wave of economic crisis, uh, political upheaval, civil war, uh, you know, all kinds of things. Um, and even despite all that, it actually took the Nazis quite a while to establish themselves as a the political force. As we've been saying, uh, you know, Hitler joined the party in 1919 and sort of made it his party in 1920, but they didn't start to get anywhere in elections, at least at the national level, for over a decade. Not until 1930 did they get an electoral breakthrough in the context of the Great Depression. That fact is kind of eye-catching. They needed crisis. They needed real crisis to flourish. In the mid and late 20s, Germany was starting to do not badly. It was starting to recover, and that wasn't a good environment for Hitler. He needed crisis. And when he got crisis, his movement started to, to take off. That's interesting. That is interesting that 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 issue of hyperinflation and uh, the, the yoke of reparations that Germany was maybe beginning to move beyond that. Um, but the Great Depression 
uh, played such a huge role. To what extent as well, I wonder, Benjamin, do we lay blame or should we lay blame on the feet of individuals, individual politicians in Germany? Or is doing so making us guilty of kind of being experts in retrospect? We, we knew everything, we know everything now that Hitler became. And so maybe it's unfair for us to be, you know, critical of, of kind of von Papen and these other people for decisions they made because they didn't know. Yeah, I mean, I think you put the question very well. And, you know, it, it is easy to kind of, to use an American phrase, Monday morning quarterback this thing. Hmm. Um, that said, there were certain politicians, and, and Franz von Papen, who you mentioned, I, I think stands out maybe first among them. There were certain politicians who very clearly had only contempt for the democracy of the Weimar Republic of the 1920s, wanted that democracy destroyed, wanted themselves in power, wanted certain interests to be furthered. Papen and a lot of people like him um, wanted uh, you know leaders of big business to have freer reign at the expense of workers. They wanted the military to be able to expand uh, again uh, around the, the limitations of the post-war Treaty of Versailles. They wanted Germany, so to speak, to become great again. Um, and they were certainly culpable in seeking to destroy the democracy. Um, Really, it's a story of traditional conservatives, kind of Germany's traditional establishment conservative elite, trying to find a way back into the kind of power they'd had before World War One, and finally deciding that although they had reservations about Hitler and he wasn't their kind of guy from their kind of social you know, background, mm. um, he was the boat that could carry them there. And, and they thought they could use him to sort of keep themselves in power. And for that, I think it's fair to hold them responsible. So they wanted to live in, in, a, in an updated version of Bismarck's Germany. Is that what they wanted? Very much. Well, actually, if they had their choice, not even updated. But <laughs> right, okay. They knew they had to update a little bit. Some of these people, the, the, uh, the briefly Chancellor Kurt von Schleicher is an interesting example of someone who was smart enough to see how the world had modernized and changed and knew that you know uh, a dictatorship needed mass popular support. And so this is the sort of thing that creates their relationship with Hitler. They're looking for mass popular support for an authoritarian, you know, right-wing, pro-capitalist, pro-military government. And ultimately they conclude Hitler is the guy and his party is the party that can take them there. So, because it, it's interesting, I, I mentioned right at the outset that the the political science angle as well to all of this, which is the experience of the Weimar Republic and Hitler's rise to power being this cautionary tale for democracy. And and uh, the, there's two elements that I want to ask about. First is, is the popular narrative being that that you know Hitler, with each successive election, was getting more and more popular. That's not entirely true, though, isn't it? I mean, that the, the election that saw him into power, the Nazi Party lost a few seats. Uh, yes, and actually, the, the there's a very common misconception about this. I just read this somewhere the other day uh, that uh, someone someone wrote uh, journalistically. Well, Hitler was elected to the chancellorship in in 1933, and and that's actually not really true. Um, the Nazis by 1932 had become the single most popular party in Germany, but they didn't have anywhere near a majority. The best they did was about 37% of the popular vote. And you're quite right. The last uh, totally free election before Hitler came in, November 1932, they dropped down about four points to about 33%. Um, so Hitler was appointed into the office by uh, officially the president, uh, the World War I Field Marshal von Hindenburg, Paul von Hindenburg, uh, but at the urging, really, of Franz von Papen and people like him, 
Um, and he had to be appointed into office. He, he couldn't win his way into office electorally. There were limits to how you could do that. You had to get appointed by the president. And they made the choice. Hindenburg, above all, made the choice uh, to put this guy in office. Then they had another election, which was kind of semi-free, because as incumbents, the Nazis were able to manipulate the system significantly. And even in the semi-free election, they didn't win a majority. The Nazis only got about 43% of the vote with their coalition mm. partners they got just barely over um the 50 percent marker to sort of solidify their parliamentary power which uh, i understand then uh meant uh, this kind of campaign of terror had to be waged against uh social democrats and the communists uh, in order yes, to, exactly. to it, get rid of them so hitler could change the constitution yes exactly um even through the election campaign of february 1933 there was a good deal of nazi sponsored violence against the kinds of opponents you mentioned um the social democrats the communists the uh, the explicit, explicitly catholic uh, center party and then after the election uh hitler used his majority to get something through the reichstag called an enabling act which basically gave all of the reichstag the parliament's uh, lawmaking powers to hitler and his cabinet so it sort of wiped the elected body out and at that point, he starts really consolidating his power and again, using terror, using his stormtroopers, using new things called concentration camps, uh, et cetera, et cetera, to arrest, brutalize, kill, terrorize, generally outlaw uh, anything that could be in opposition, political parties, but also all kinds of social groups, professional groups. I mean, right down to like the community choir would be like abolished or put under Nazi leadership. They they were very systematic about taking over any organization that could possibly ever be a kind of cell of resistance. So it, it, it's interesting. Uh, right at the outset, I I suppose I I, I retold, repurposed, rehashed that narrative. You know, Hitler rises to power, elected democratically, and it's the cautionary tale for democracy. It's the way you describe it. It, it is. It is much more complicated than that, uh, that you had all of these actors, you had von Papen and von Schleicher, and you had all of these people in positions of power, independent of Adolf Hitler, who had utter contempt for democracy, it seems as well. Yes, yes. And, and one of the tragedies here is, you know, well into this process, um, you know, potentially even into 1933, there was an electoral majority in Germany uh, to stop the Nazis and to keep this from happening. But for various reasons, the, the sort of popular will was kind of circumvented by a lot of maneuvering by these powerful people. And you also made the point at the outset um, that Hitler had had campaigned basically saying he would operate within the rules until he had power, and then he would destroy the rules. And that's exactly right. And even in the February 1933 election campaign, Hitler and the Nazis, they made speeches. The text is quite clearly out there where they said, this is the last election. Once you vote us into office, we're done with this democracy business. And they kept that promise. They, you know, very consequentially destroyed democracy very quickly, uh, very completely and totally in March uh, and the months thereafter of 1933. This is like the, you know, the Mussolini making the trains run on time. But they, hit the, they kept their promises, those Nazis, when it came to elections, at yeah. least. Uh, so yeah. to, to what extent then, Benjamin, final question, it does... The German experience from 1923 to 33. To what extent is it a cautionary tale for democracies today? Uh, honestly, I think to a very considerable extent, because I believe there are sort of political dynamics that we see in the Nazi rise to power, which in many ways still apply and we see operating today. Um, at, at the kind of structural level, uh, we see this in a number of countries. I see it in the United States, for instance. Um, 
the level at which um, sort of establishment mainstream conservatives frustrated with their inability to hold at least as much power as they would like, make alliances with with political groups and individuals who are openly contemptuous of democracy and pretty open about their willingness to destroy it or at least, you know, critically weaken it. And that dynamic is very much still with us in the world. And, you know, I, I wish that uh, if I could wish that uh, a certain group of people would would read my book, I would wish it upon establishment conservatives who want to make this kind of bad deal. Because the thing is, it doesn't end well for them either. It doesn't end well for any of us. But mm-hmm. if you look at what happened to people like Von Poppen, they didn't have a particularly good time under the Third Reich either. And many people sort of like him ended up being murdered by Hitler. So it's a bad deal all around. But it does, I think, emphasize the quality of warning in this story. Well, that book, uh, should you want to read it, it's called The Death of Democracy, Hitler's Rise to Power and the Downfall of the Weimar Republic. Benjamin Carter Hett is the author. Benjamin, an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for speaking to us. Thanks for having me. The Hard Shoulder with Kieran Cuddy with Nissan. Weekdays from four on News Talk.